Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters. Earth Matters brings you environment and social justice stories. Today's story was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX Canberra on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horry. Today on Earth Matters, we'll hear from the 1080 Summit in Nam, Melbourne, in August 2018. This is the second of two editions on the 1080 Summit. This part is focusing on the effect of 1080 poisoning on dingoes. And next we'll hear from Linda Stoner, the MC of the 1080 Summit and Chief Executive of Animal Liberation. Our next panellist is Nick Papalia. He's been on the national trail to get 1080 banned for 25 years. He's a published author of two books, Who Cares and A Tree Without Roots, as well as an e-book, The Boomerang Trail. Along with his companion, Dingo Lindy, he's visited 127 schools and given 643 dingo awareness sessions. You're welcome. We've learned that 1080 kills large numbers of non-target species, such as endangered native species. But if we can, for a moment, focus on the one that is targeted, Australia's apex land predator, the dingo, can you please explain why the dingo is targeted and the effect this has on disrupting the social structure of dingo communities? The top land predator is the the guardian, the protector and the modulator, and it keeps everything in balance. That's well researched and studied. The dingo keeps the cat, the fox, the goat, the pig, the rabbit, the kangaroo and the wild dogs in tow. When those population of dingoes are decimated by 1080, exasperation takes place in a destabilisation effect and the dingo is different to a dog. It's, it's, it's awarded the title of Canis dingo as a different species to Canis familiaris because it is different in its manner and its role. The dingo is the top land predator. It's a territorial animal and when it's not exasperated in um, destabilisation and effect through 1080, it'll keep any intruder at bay and it keeps the, the balance going. It's a modulator effect and it's true. So when, when that happens, when 1080 is killing the alphas, the alpha dingoes are the teachers to the juveniles and they're very intelligent dingoes. They have a 30% larger skull morphology than a dog. Um, they are very different. They, they only have one cycle a year. Dogs have two. They generally don't bark. They can copy and simulate a copy bark if they're in association with dogs and hybrids do bark. But generally they'll howl or they're very quiet. They, there's a whole lot of differences. But anyway, um, in the wild, the alphas will be the only two that breed. And if it's a pack of six or eight, those six or eight dingoes will be immediate surrogate parents to those puppies. So that's a different thing. And there are very many differences, but they are changed immediately. If you kill the alphas, there's no teacher. And what happens is they run amok with mayhem and anarchy and there's complete um, competition. And that's what will be happening with what is actually a human-created situation in the wild dog situation. Because when a dingo is killed, the dingo will go and what's replaced is 50 dogs. Because those juvenile dingoes, they'll run amok and they'll kill 50 sheep just in competition for fun. And then they'll mate with dogs, which they never do if you leave them in a pack which is protected, which was researched by Arian Wallach and Arian Wallach and Adam O'Neill at Evelyn Downs in South Australia. And those um, scientific reports and research proved incredible. Uh, they actually 
were given the highest award for scientific research in Australia with the Eureka Award. It doesn't get any higher than that. And yet we, we dismiss it. We, we don't respect that. We continue bombing them with 1080. And where they've been bombed and wiped out across Australia, and there's many pockets across Australia where there's no dingoes because we dropped 1080 everywhere, in the parks, in the wild, everywhere, right across Australia. Where those dingoes have gone, and we've got the desert, we've got the alpine, we've got the tropical, and we've got the Fraser Island. The Fraser Island and the alpine dingo are endangered species. The tropical and the desert, we don't know what they are. The, the population with the various spans of our country, we can't get a population number, but they're a vulnerable species. They're classified so red-listed internationally. Uh, we have to protect these animals because soon they'll be extinct if we don't do something about it. We're following the same footpath we did with the thylacine and um, it's not very intelligent. We actually have the world <laughs> record in mammal extinction and um, it's, it's, it's shameful in every manner. But what happens is that exasperation taking place when the alphas are extinguished and killed just results in mating with wild dogs and it does. It just creates a mayhem situation and I hope that answers the question. It does. It was fascinating. Thank you. I think we could all listen to you all night about dingoes. I've already learned a great deal. Thanks, Nick. Thank First of all, I think what we will see, and brace yourselves, is um, uh, one of Paul's um, videos, which was one of my first introductions to 1080. So if we could throw to that, that would be... Not good, but... There's another pup, big boys in my town, lady. Give it a scared look here, they get really great. And we call ourselves human beings. A lot of rot. Look at it. You can't touch it, because it'll bite you. Rip your hand apart. You'll probably get up again soon. They get dying fits and starts and froth in the mouth and howl and carry on. Typical 1080. Other egg chemicals don't kill them like this. This makes about the 14th dog, Neil, that's died. I've had that have died with 1080. The owner's inside crying. One that's died so far since 12:30 today, and it's about 6:30 today now. You know, look what they go through. He's been running like an Olympic um, athlete, round and round and round and round. You know, young lappies around the place. He got under this cage, and I managed to get him up in the cage. You know, this is what sort of death that 1080 does. Most cruel bullshit thing there ever is. Look at their eyes, absolutely frightened. No? No idea what's happening. They just keep going on and on and on till they just wear themselves down, froth at the mouth and carry on. You know? If he's lucky you're dying five to fifteen minutes. You know? Depends how much each dog has got. This dog has picked up the paws that another dog has brought in and he's licked another dog or he's eaten what the other dog has obviously thrown or speared up. You know, just about dead. Not long. You know, 
some criticism from pro 1080 people which was so disgusting saying why did you film your dogs mate etc etc fact is Paul didn't have a gun and he lives way out far away from any vet and even if he could have got his dogs to the vet there would have been nothing the vets could have done so I just, uh, it made me upset to see Paul so maligned and um, I'm not sure if, I can't remember if I told you at the head of, uh, of this evening that um, Animal Liberation got two of Paul's dogs and we sent them off to an independent laboratory and um, it came back unequivocally that they had also died of 1080. It is, it is a terrible, terrible thing. G. Yunapingu singing Marandil from his Gurumul album. You're with Earth Matters, and today we're listening in to the 1080 Summit that was in Melbourne, Nam, August 2018. I'm Beck Horridge. Our next panellist is Dr. Ernest Healy. He is a sociologist at Monash University, the author of Victorian Dingo Threatened Species, nomination secretary of the National Dingo Preservation and Conservation Program, and he's currently one of the two conservation appointments to the Victorian government's Wild Dog Management Advisory Committee. And he's instrumental in promoting the adoption of improved dingo apex predator protection policy by the Victorian government. Would you please make Dr. Healy very welcome? My question to you is, we often hear of what are termed wild dog baiting programs, but it seems clear that this is a euphemism for the dingo. 
Can you please tell us about your fight to elevate the dingo to protected status and how that relates to the Flora and Fauna Act and perhaps expand on why some areas are baited and some are not? Yes, thank you. The term wild dog is uh, used in uh, lethal control context is really a propaganda term. What we're killing for the greater part is uh, the Australian native dog, the dingo. Sure, hybridisation has occurred, but the hybridisation levels even in Victoria and New South Wales are nowhere near as high as is often made out. What we are killing, these animals are predominantly dingo. Um, they function environmentally as dingoes, as apex predators. We're killing a native animal uh, on an industrial scale. And part of the way that uh, uh, authorities help disguise that fact to the public is to uh, refer to wild dogs. If they were to refer to dingoes, there would be a, a much higher level of awareness. I'd like to give a little bit of information about the current state of play of dingo conservation in Victoria. I wouldn't like to suggest at all that we're anywhere near where we want to be in terms of apex predator conservation and dingo conservation. Uh, but we have had some limited progress in Victoria. And the two resolutions that were first passed in Melbourne, and it was around 1838, a year or two after the uh, association first set up shop here, the first was to uh, a resolution that far, uh, firearms should not be uh, given to the natives, and the second was to put a bounty on the head of the dingo. Uh, even in those early years, there was, for a relatively small number of people, to several hundred people, there were tens of thousands of sheep roaming around uh, this area here, where we are today, probably. Uh, so uh, the persecution of, of the dingo really began day one. How will we protect the dingo, which we've committed to under the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, while not really changing things too much for farmers, being able to kill dingoes to supposedly protect farm stock. And the formula that, that was arrived at is the map you see here, and it basically says there will be a three-kilometre area where private land, farming land, meets crown land. There will be a zone of three kilometres into crown land where wild dogs and dingoes can be legally killed. Dingoes, although just listed as a threatened native taxon were unprotected in law within that three-kilometre buffer. And this is what it looks like in eastern Victoria. If you look closely there, I hope you can see a blue line running around. That's the three-kilometre buffer where it, even uh, the threatened species, the dingo, can be killed, um, uh, be killed through uh, routine control, including with 1080. That was the political compromise. As the dingo was listed as a threatened native taxon, there was this provision put in place that it would be unprotected and legally killed in certain places within that three-kilometre buffer. Now, the result of this is, and this is sort of, a, if you like, a, a relative progress, is that the state, the government doggers and use of 1080, aerial baiting, trapping and so forth, can only occur within that three kilometres. The Extreme elements within the farming lobby are not happy with the three kilometres. They want to be able to bait and apply lethal control really wherever they want. Uh, the catch-22 here from a conservation point of view is that before the threatened species listing, it just so happened that most lethal control was conducted within three kilometres of that private public land interface anyway. So in practical terms for farmers, the threatened species really didn't change much in practice. 
The other background factor here, of course, is that whatever animals you kill within that three kilometres have uh, a very widespread ramifications throughout uh, into ecosystems well beyond that three kilometres. Okay, um, ecological uh, ecologists will tell you this straight away. The damage, ecological damage done is not limited to the three kilometres. I just thought I'd provide a few quick conclusions and insights from my presence on the Wild Dog Advisory Committee. The I may not be on the committee much longer after this evening. <laughs> it's quite clear that the members of the committee themselves and I believe um, agriculture department authorities do not perceive any need to ensure that lethal control is proportionate to evidence about the scale of the farm stock predation problem. They don't see that if uh, predation rates are low, then they, can, they should cut back, back on control, including the use of 1080, should cut back on control, um, or if their problem's big, they should perhaps then and they might scale it up. They don't think like that. They simply feel uh, convinced that they need to pile it on. Within that three-kilometre buffer, they need to pile it on. And they're forever looking for more ways to convince both the state and federal governments uh, to uh, increase uh, aerial baiting to ever new areas, to increase the intensity of aerial baiting, the number of baits dropped per kilometre from helicopters and so forth. They have no sense of proportionality. And here's a statement from a... This is the bit that will really get me sacked, I think, is from a... a this is a departmental sort of caveat uh, in a recent draft report to the Minister for Agriculture um, talk, talking about um, how little evidence they have that their control, uh, their lethal control of wild dogs is, is actually helping farmers uh, defend their livestock. And they say this. It's also important to note that the wild dog program is designed to meet the government's obligations under the Kelp Act to prevent the spread of and as far as possible eradicate established pest animals uh, from their land. The Victorian wild dog program is not designed to demonstrate the efficacy of the individual practices uh, in reducing stock losses. They do not feel that under the legislation they have, are under any onus to demonstrate to the government that their lethal control is, in fact, helping protect farm livestock. They don't feel there's any such obligation under the law. Well, in fact, there may not be under the... Perhaps I think there's a serious shortcoming within the Catchment Land Protection Act. There's a serious shortcoming in the Act. The Act ought to be reviewed to ensure that uh, the, the department is accountable in this respect. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'd, I'd just emphasise too that the available evidence about um, the actual numbers of farm stock loss to wild dog predation is very low in Victoria. The, the officially reported numbers of stock loss by farmers, for example, in 2016-17, was 995 sheep in Victoria, across Victoria. These are the figures I got from the committee. Yet if you look at the population of sheep in Victoria in that year, it was over 13 million sheep. This is 76 sheep lost in every 1 million sheep. And yet we're flying helicopters around, dropping tonnes of 1080 around the place uh, to protect 995 sheep out of a population of over 13 million. There is something seriously wrong here.
And our next panellist is John Marsh. Dingoes became a part of John's life at a young age and have taught and guided him ever since. John is a member of many conservation groups and firmly believes in the principles of compassionate conservation and has been advocating and educating for a complete ban of 1080 for many years and wants the dingo recognised as a truly unique Australian species and therefore legislated protection granted. John has worked at Potteroo Palace Native Animal Education Sanctuary for nine years as head dingo keeper and educator. John has been involved with Save Fraser Island Dingoes for eight years in an advisory capacity and he's also a member of their dingo advisory team involved in surveillance on Fraser Island or Gary Island. John is also a member of the National Dingo Preservation and Recovery Program and affiliated with the Centre for Compassionate Conservation and the Predator Friendly Network and the Dingo for Biodiversity. Would you please make John very welcome. John, what are the environmental effects of 1080? In particular, what is secondary contamination and what non-lethal alternatives do we have? Thank you, Linda. Yeah, the first part of your question is really very easy to answer and um, it can be answered with just one word, devastating. Yeah, 1080 is water-soluble and many people are under the misconception that this renders it sort of um, ineffective after rain. Um, on the contrary, I mean, if, when you think about it, if 1080, it being water-soluble renders it something ineffective, then we should all throw away our laundry detergent and our dishwashing liquids because they're ineffective people because they're water-soluble. Being water-soluble only serves <coughs> to increase the destructive potential of compound 1080. Wherever 1080 baits are dropped or laid, their water solubility means that they are soaked into the soil. That then destroys all the living organisms within the soil. Plants take up the 1080 poison through their roots. It then gets into the foliage of the, the plants, be they trees, bushes. So any browsing animals can be affected by eating those particular plants. Yet yeah, the, the potential is there to either poison the animal or make that particular plant no longer palatable for those particular animals that are used to or dependent upon living or browsing on those particular plants. As far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any research done on this, but it, you know, all the indicators are there that that's how it will work. The process of aerial baiting produces lots of fine dust particles that are contaminated with 1080. These fine particles get carried by the wind. They end up landing in areas that are much broader and wider than the intended areas. They fall onto, again, the foliage of plants, grasses. So again, that foliage, the grass, is toxic. Any browsing or grazing animals are then poisoned. There has been evidence come from New Zealand where farmers have actually lost stock because of this very factor. The second part of that question about the secondary contamination. Secondary contamination is in fact secondary killing. And that occurs when a non-target animal species feeds upon, be it an animal or a bird, feeds upon a carcass that has been poisoned by 1080. Those carrion eating animals or birds are then poisoned by 1080. The effect is further compounded 
if that carrion-eating animal, animal happens to be a lactating mammal. 1080 is then transferred to their offspring by the mother's milk. If an animal survives being baited by 1080 and then has offspring, those offspring suffer birth defects. Now I've seen some horrific consequences of those birth defects as a direct result of being born to a mother that managed to survive 1080. In short, 1080 kills every living organism on this planet. And we must remember, there is no antidote. To answer the second part of your question, what non-lethal alternatives do we have? Leave the dingo alone. Stop the persecution. And we also need to ask ourselves a very important question, and Ernest alluded to it in his talk. Is there really a problem that justifies such a drastic, destructive solution? Jeff Gwinnall wrote a very interesting post raising this very question in which he stated, funny thing, people keep talking about the solution when in fact there is no real problem. Just because a group of prolific liars keep saying there is a problem doesn't mean it's true. The only problem is a group of liars wants to make a huge amount of money from dumping poison. <laughs> Graziers, especially sheep farmers, are a very powerful lobby group in this country. And they, in conjunction with the Department of Agriculture, tend to over-exaggerate the effects of livestock losses due to predation. That was John Marsh talking at the 1080 Summit held in Melbourne, Nam, in August 2018. You've been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne in Wurundjeri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. And if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page on Earth Matters 3CR Radio. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. That's all for today's show. Thanks so much for sharing this time with us. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories. I'm Beck Horridge. Let's heal it up now with Geoffrey Gurumal Unipingu singing Galiku. Banjar go, 